It is Mother's Day, and I'm glad that you are all here. If you're learning that it's Mother's Day, dads, uh, for the first time right now, there's still time. Order something online and go pick it up. Uh, usually one of the things that happens here is that when uh, Mother's Day or Father's Day are coming around, usually I'll like press pause on whatever series that I'm doing, and we'll stop and we'll do a specific Mother's Day or Father's Day message. Um, but in the providence of God this year, uh, as we're going through the parables, and I was outlining this series, I was going to do all of chapter 15 in one week last week, and then I realized that was just too much. And so I thought, no, we'll do the end of chapter 15 in Luke this week, and then realized, like, hey, it's going to be Mother's Day, and we're going to have I, what I think is a highly applicable uh, sermon for Mother's Day for many of you mothers, because this is a story of two jacked-up kids. How many of you would say, like, I can relate to that already? No, I'm just, don't raise your, oh my gosh, I've got a couple of moms that have raised their hands, threw their kids under the bus. We, we know, right? Uh, and this is two sons, and my mom is probably going to be watching this right now, and she had two sons, and they were both a mess. And so if nobody else gets anything out of it today, I know that my mom back in Delaware, who's probably watching right now, will get something out of it. And so we're going to look at Luke 15 today. If you have your Bibles, Luke 15, uh, 11 through 32 is most frequently known as the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, I'll maybe give you a reason why we could call it something a little different than that. Um, but it's been uh, known throughout the history of the church as the parable of the prodigal son. Last week we looked at those first two uh, of the set of three. Uh, in Luke 15 you have the parable of the lost sheep. You have the parable of the lost coin. And both of those are meant to show God's heart for lost people. And we talked about that specifically last week. And if you remember, um, I said that all three of these parables kind of go together. And so the lost sheep and the lost coin were kind of like two small stories. And then this is the last story, and it's much longer and, as you'll see, much more involved. And uh, one of the things that Jesus is doing as a great storyteller is he's, he's uh, heaping these stories on top of each other all to make one great point. So today is the resounding climax of this whole teaching section that he's teaching. And I want to remind you, if you look at chapter 15, Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, of the people who are in the audience. As Jesus is teaching this story, these stories, there's an audience that he's teaching. And Luke 15, 1 says, The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. We said last week that those tax collectors and sinners, they're, they're known as the rebellious people. They don't have any need for God. They don't like the Bible. They don't want to come to church. Uh, those are the rebellious ones. But then there were, in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes, and it says that they grumbled, saying that this man receives sinners and eats with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes, we said last week, are the religious people. So you had the rebellious people, and you had the religious people. And the religious people were the ones that knew how to... Uh, gain favor with God and God look at all the things I'm doing for you they're the ones who love the church they loved all of the Bible studies and all the different activities but their heart was for themselves and not for God and so the, the people who are listening to Jesus tell these stories are some interested rebellious people and some grumpy religious people and Jesus tells these stories to help us understand his heart for all people now as we study the prodigal son it's longer I think the message at the 9 o'clock hour, you guys should check this out before you show up, because I think it was an hour long. That's just the message part, by the way. 
Um, and I'll be doing that again here. So if you have reservations, just let me know, and we'll try to see what we can do. Um, but this story is so cool that there's so many different cultural clues that are there and different things that are going on that what I'm going to do is actually just kind of walk through the text in four different scenes, and I'm going to try to point out a lot of those things and apply it like as we're going. And I have these, this, this is called a pulpit, by the way. Have any of you ever seen one of these before? So you can say amen, and I'll know that you've seen it before. Right, there you go. Okay. It's called a pulpit. It's good for pounding. Okay. It's good if I really need to make a point, I can lean over it. But there are those who are concerned that this thing is going to go right out from under me. So I'm going to be careful today. But I brought the pulpit because I have extra notes. Like, I don't know if you can see it or not, but there's a lot of scribbling and highlighting. And I don't usually use all of these notes. For your, you're in for either a real treat or a long afternoon. But there's so much cool stuff about this story that I want to make sure that we see and feel like how great Jesus was as a teacher and what he's getting across as he shares God's heart for lost people. So like I said, I'll give you four scenes. The first scene that we're going to look at is verses 11 through 16. And this is going to be a scene of rejection, okay? Verses 11 through 16. Luke 15, 1 says this, And he, that is Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And I'll stop and talk about that just for a second because, again, throughout the course of church history, this has been known as the parable of the prodigal son. To be prodigal means to be recklessly extravagant or a reckless spendthrift. And because of the actions that we'll see in a few minutes of the one younger son, this story has kind of traditionally been interpreted and revolved around that son. But Jesus starts out by saying there was a man and he had two sons. And I want you to know that all three of those characters are vital to understanding this story. Because we will all find ourselves in this story. That everyone who's ever existed could find themselves in this story, either as the younger son or as the older son. And every person who's ever existed in the history of the world needs to understand the third person in this story, and that is the father. The younger son, again, represents the rebellious people, people with no interest or need in God. The older son that we'll meet at the end today represents the religious people who think that they are God's gift to God. And the father in the story represents the father heart of God for his people. So we all find ourselves somewhere in the story, either as the religious or the rebellious, with God pursuing us for a relationship. So he said there was a man who had two sons. In verse 12, we'll meet the first of those sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So you may be familiar with how it worked in that day is that the older child, the oldest son, would get two-thirds of the estate that the father owned. All that the father owned, when it came time to divvy it up, the oldest son would get two-thirds, then the others would get one-third. There are two sons here, so older son gets two-thirds of the estate, younger son gets one-third of the estate. When I say estate, I want you to make sure that you realize that we're not talking about here that one son got two big bags full of cash, and that the other son got one bag full of cash. That an estate was mostly comprised of property, uh, maybe livestock and things like that, um, but they were not liquid assets, and that's important for our understanding of the story because that when the younger son comes and asks for his share, that there's an estate that they all live on and that their livelihood is gained from. The father, maybe the mother, the sons, the servants. And this has been a generational estate. 
that from great-grandfather to grandfather to father to son and for generations that this has been in the family and that this estate is how the family was loved and cared for and protected. This estate was the livelihood of the entire family. There was provision even in the law that you could, a father, before he died, that the father could actually divide his assets and give legal ownership to his sons. What the sons had then was legal ownership, but not the right to dispossess, not the right to go and sell those things. When the younger son comes and, and talks to his father and says, give me my share of, of what is mine, give me what I have coming to me. Many of you have heard it, that the younger son is saying to the father, I wish you were dead. He's not quite saying, I wish you were dead. What he's saying is, I can't wait for you to die. Is there a difference? Not a lot, right? If Mr. Onspock's kids came to him, if Caleb came to Jason, firstborn son, and said, Dad, I'm amazing and I'm awesome, but my brother here, Owen, is not so awesome, and he has a question for you. And Owen said, Jason, Dad, give me what's coming to me. I don't wish you were dead, but I can't wait for you to die. Jesus would be a little offended. He's be a little upset, a little frustrated. And in fact, in that day, what the father should have done to the son is smacked him upside the head. They didn't have CPS back then, so you could smack a kid upside the head. And it got the point across, right? And the father in this story, when the son comes to him and says that, the son is, in fact, saying, like, I can't wait for you to die so I can have my share. The dad should have stepped in and said, you're insane, you're crazy, no, we're not doing that. In addition, there's someone else that should have been standing there next to the father. Do you know who it was? Like in this Middle Eastern culture, when there was a rift between a father and a child that wasn't the oldest child, do you know who the primary arbiter was? The reconciler? The person who was supposed to stand there and arbitrate this argument? Was the oldest son. He's nowhere to be found. We will learn about the religious, the heart of the religious older brother here just by his absence. Because he should have been there and he should have been pleading with his younger brother, no, don't do this. You're making a foolish decision. You're hurting not only yourself, but the whole family. You'll see after that that the father, it says, and he divided his property between them. That the father had the right and privilege to say, I'm going to divide the property. But the father still had the right to all of the property and to live off of all the property and, and to reap the benefits of all the property that was there. But I want you to see that the father gives the son the freedom to reject him here. The father gives the son the freedom to reject him in this story. I want you to know that God doesn't keep prisoners, Okay? And I believe in irresistible grace. Those whom God calls to himself will come to him. But I also want you to know that God doesn't hold people against, quote, their will. That God doesn't take prisoners and keep prisoners. And this story reflects some of that imagery. So the younger son says, give me what I've got coming to me. And then it says, in a, in a minute, in verse 13, it says, not many days later, he gathered all that he had and he took a journey. That word gathered is really important right there. Because what it means is he took all of this property. He took the property that was under his ownership that he didn't have the right to sell. Because, again, it wasn't just about him being cared for with this property. And he actually sold it. He took what was his, but what was caring for lots of other people. And he went and he sold it and he got rid of it. Here's one of the things that rejection says. 
Rejection says, I'm going to do what I want, and I don't care who I hurt. Rejection always says, I'm going to do what I want, and I don't care who I hurt. You see, the younger son, whether or not he had the right to say, Dad, divide it with me so like, I know what I'm going to be living on in the future, and we know what's going on, that he was leaving a lot of carnage in his wake. By taking that property and then liquidating it and selling it, that estate went from full to now two-thirds. And all the people who were meant to, to live off of the proceeds of that estate were now hurt because of what the younger son decided to do. You see, your sin and your rejection don't just hurt you. Your sin and your rejection, my sin and my rejection, when we reject God, it leaves carnage. And it leaves, leaves a wake of destruction all over the place. I've sat in those offices. I've sat across those tables. I've looked people in the eye. Some of you have been with me when we've done it even. And looked right at people in, in this church, in other places, and said, if you go this route, you're going to destroy your family. If you leave your spouse and you choose someone else, you're, you're not just hurting yourself. And we've had over and over people look and say, I'm going to do what I want, and I don't care who gets hurt. And we can justify it, right? People are really good at justifying. Well, they would be better off, or well, I think it's going to be better. But at the end of the day, the attitude of rejection is one of saying, I'm going to do what I want, and I don't care what it does to anybody else. That's the attitude that's always behind rejection, and that's the attitude that the younger son has here. He says, give me what is mine, even though that there are a lot of people that lean on that. This wasn't just give me my bag of money and now I can go and do what I want with it and you guys have all that you have. This was generation after generation. When he sold that property, that family never got it back. That it now belonged to someone else and it was part of their inheritance. And he said, I don't care what it costs. I don't care who I hurt. I'm going to do what I want. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. Rejection also results in you running. Rejection results in people running away from God, running away from family. He runs to a far country. This presumably is a Jewish family that lives in Israel. He's going to run to a far country. He's going to be around people that don't hold the same values as him. People who are very different culturally than him. People who are religiously very different than him. He's alienating himself. He's separating himself from accountability. Rejection always does that. I've never talked to a man who is thinking about leaving his wife or thinking about doing something nefarious and him say, you know what, I think I'm going to like just stay around the church and keep doing it. Right? Like, you know what? I, I, what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to keep all my Christian friends. I'm going to keep meeting in my accountability group. I'm going to keep coming to men's breakfast. I'm going to keep doing all of the Christian things and, and keep listening to all that accountability and have people speak truth into my life and all that. And I'm also going to go and do this thing that is explicitly against Scripture. You know, I've never had that happen. 20 years of ministry. It's crazy. But what I have seen over and over and over again is the guy or the gal or the kid stops coming to church like ah you know i missed a week i missed a couple weeks i missed a month no honey you guys you go ahead and take the kids i'm i got some stuff i got to do and take care of and there's a separation 
And it's a slow separation for many people. I can tell you story after story after story. It's this slow separation that starts because rejection always leads to people running away and alienating and separating. And I just want to beg you, if that's you, right? Or if that's somebody you know and you see that they're starting to separate themselves from Christian influence and separate themselves from church and from other people who are godly and like-minded people, speak into that. Call that out. Because rejection will cause people to run. It says, He there squandered his property in reckless living. He took the property. He sold the property. He had the bag of money. He squandered it all. That part of the generational inheritance and the generational estate is now gone. Squandered in reckless living. And I want you to notice in verse 14 how quickly the narrative descends. And what I mean by that is... That when Jesus was telling stories, he was invoking feelings, right? He could have just given us propositional truth statements, but he's invoking feelings. And oftentimes when you read these stories, you'll see something happen really quickly. And we just went from father, son asked the father for what is uh, due him, and then he sells it, and he's out, and he's living, and he's having the good life. And very quickly, and you see that the, the good life doesn't last long, does it? He's in a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And then he had spent everything. And a severe famine arose. We think we're going to do such great things. I'm going to live and I'm going to be happy. I deserve to be happy. You don't make me happy, so I'm going to make myself happy. I don't care who it hurts, but I'm going to be happy. And we reject and we run. And we think, I'm, now I'm going to be happy. And we're happy for like 15 minutes. And we realize that all the things that we were counting on to make us happy really don't make us happy at all because they're not the things that God designed to make us happy. And it quickly descends. He had spent everything. A severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. What do you do when you realize that something's a little wrong? That something's a little off? Because I think what happens oftentimes is like the rejection, when people reject God, re reject the church, reject the people of God, usually it starts with like something's a little off. But you know what we do when something's a little off? We try to fix it ourselves, right? You're driving your car, the little light comes on, you're like, I wonder what that's there for. You look it up in the book, it's like your engine could blow up at any time. Oh, it's just a light. I'm pretty sure I can fix that myself, right? Something happens at your house. It's like, it's just a little water leak. I'm pretty sure I can fix that myself, right? And I don't know about you, but for me, that never goes well, right? Like, I got this is not the word that my wife wants to hear, right? If it's anything to do with tools, and I say, babe, I got this. She's calling somebody on the phone. He ain't got this. I think in our spiritual lives, here's what can happen, is that things can be off. We can begin to be in need. We can see that we're in need. And you know where we go first? Oh, I can fix this. I got this. I could do this myself, right? I just need to pray a little bit more. I just need to read my Bible a little bit more. I just need to, I just need to be, buck up and be stronger. I just need to be happier. I just need to listen to more worship music, right? So he began to be in need. He went and hired himself out. To one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. He's trying to fix his own problems. He's got the I got this mentality. I can take care of this. Yeah, things are rough, but I'm going to take care of it. Are you there this morning? 
Could that be where you're at? You're kind of like on the way, walking away from Jesus. And you're like, I, I got this, right? He began to be in need. But look what happens. He hired himself out. They sent him into the field to feed the pigs. By the way, that's not good if you're Jewish, is it? <clears throat> Verse 16, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, I know what your Sunday school lesson taught you, and i got to correct it here real quick. These were not like corn kernels with no corn left on it. But you always see the picture of he's sitting there and he's eating the corn kernel that the, there's no corn left on it or whatever. Does the text ever say that he got anything to eat? In fact, it explicitly says that he didn't get anything to eat. The picture that you're supposed to see is that the pigs had more food than this guy. That even the detestable, unclean, nasty pigs had more than this guy. That people wouldn't even give him that much to eat. You know what we call this in life? We call this hitting rock bottom. You know somebody who hit rock bottom? You've been at that place... You just hit rock, like it's, this is as bad as it gets, right? I hit rock bottom. You think this guy's sitting there and, you know, there's the pigs and he's kind of like, man, if I only I could eat that. And he goes over to get it and the pigs are like, step off, this is mine. And he can't even eat anything. He's hungry and all that kind of stuff. You think he's like, man, this is really what I was thinking when I told my dad, I'm going to Vegas, right? Give me everything I got. I'm going to Vegas. Everything that happens in Vegas Vegas stays in Vegas. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be fun. I've seen the commercials. I'm going to party in Vegas. He partied in Vegas for about an hour and a half. He lost everything that he had, and now he's eating, not even eating pig food in Vegas. You think he's excited about Vegas when he's there with the pigs? No. And he's already tried, you know, you, you, get, you find yourself in the pit in life, right? You've hit rock bottom. You've dug and you've dug and you've dug and you've dug, and now you're at rock bottom. And you know what we do? is we get to rock bottom, and then we look up, and we say, hey, well, somebody toss me a shovel because I know I can make it out. And they're like, what are you going to do with a shovel if you're in the bottom? You're like, I'm going to dig my way out. When we're at rock bottom and we try to dig, what way are we going? Which way are we going? Not up. And I told the first service, I know there's some smart aleck out there thinking, I could take the shovel, and I could dig steps into the side of the pit, and I could crawl myself out. No. You're digging your way down further and further and further because you're trying to do it yourself. I know because I'm a guy, I do the same thing. Like, I can fix this. I can take care of this. When he hit rock bottom, you realize that sometimes your choices and your rejection have to cost you everything. Right? It has to cost you everything. Rejection always comes with regrets. And you're down there at rock bottom, and you've made the choices, and you're like, what, what's happening? And you look up, and God's there, and God's ready to pull you up out of the pit. And instead, you're like, God, just throw me a shovel. I got this on my own. And rejection always comes with regrets. Why did I do that? How did I do that? How did I get here? It wasn't supposed to end up this way. I thought it was going to be different. I thought it was going to be better. And you've heard this before, probably, but, but, but sin always takes you further than you wanted to go. You heard that? Sin always takes you further than you wanted to go. And sin always costs you more than you wanted to pay. And sin always over-promises. And sin always under-delivers. 
And for the person who's rejecting God or thinking about rejecting God, and, and you think they look so much better over there. And you think, if I can just get what's coming to me, and I can just go and do my own thing, and I can go and live my own way, and I can do my rebellion thing. And some people call this the, the path of self-gratification, Right? And if I can just get what's coming to me and what I'm owed and what I deserve, and I can go and live the path of self-gratification, then I will have arrived. I will be happy. And that's what I live for. And maybe some of you or someone you know has done that. And they've lived the path of self-gratification. And now they find themselves in the pit of self-gratification because we know that the path of self-gratification always leads to the pit of self-gratification. That's not even in my notes. I didn't even say it in the first service. But I think it makes sense that we take that path and we end up there and then we think we can just get ourselves out of it. But at the end of the day, sometimes it has to cost us everything. We have to realize, like, I'm further than I ever wanted to go and this has cost me more than I ever wanted to pay. It really overpromised and it really underdelivered. And here I am in that pit. And when I find myself in that place, or hopefully before I find myself in that place, what is it that I'm going to do? And scene one was a scene of rejection. Scene two then, in verses 17 through 21, is a scene of return. And it starts out beautifully in verse 17. Verse 17 says this, But when he came to himself... Can I just say that one more time? Look at your Bibles. Make sure that you're there. But when he came to himself... What does that mean about before this point in the story? sin will always blind us right he wasn't himself he wasn't thinking square he wasn't thinking properly right usually what happens when somebody rejects God and just totally like makes a mess of their life they don't come back and say like I really calculated this out I sat down I thought through the options I really was like thinking with all of my mind about this process and it made a ton of sense right no, usually it's just like a look, a thought, a look, an action, and now I'm in trouble. It says, when he came to himself. This is a statement about the grace of God. When I'm in the pit, the only thing I know how to do is ask for the shovel. But the grace of God is what it is when he says he came to himself. It says, he came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He got real about where he was at. You see, the first step in return is recognition. You might want to write that down. That the first step of return is recognition. I have to be willing to say, here's where I'm at right now. Like before I can go there, and before I can change things, and before I can do any of that, the first step is recognition. Right? If I'm down in the pit, I've reached rock bottom. And I'm like, it's nice down here. I don't even need air conditioning because it's so cool. I don't need sunscreen because the sun doesn't come down here. I can call Uber Eats and they'll drop something down the hole. Like, it's really not that bad, right? I'll just, I live here. This is pretty good. This is way better than the alternative of, like, asking God to pull me out of the hole, right? But the first step in return is recognition, like, from a human standpoint. Is, is being willing to call it what it is, man. And here's the thing. It, you don't have to get to the pit, right? You don't have to get to rock bottom. That this guy didn't have to do that. We saw that up at the beginning of verse 15. 
When he began to be in need, he could have realized at that point, hang on a minute. And he could have turned back to God, turned back to the Father at that point. He says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my Father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now this is interesting because he's making a plan, right? He's formulating a plan. He's still there in the far country. He's still there with the pigs and all of that. And he comes to himself and he realizes, like, I'm in a bad spot. What do I do to get out of it? And I want you to see what his plan includes. I will arise and go to my father is something called repentance. We talked about it last week. That's when I change my mind, I change my direction, and it changes everything about my life. He was running from the Father, and now he says, I'm going to run back to the Father. You know how much humility that took? To, be, to say, I'm going to go back to my Father, and I'm going to go back to my big brother, who can't be very excited about me right now. I'm going to go back to that village, and you know, like they all know how silly I was, and how bad I was, and what I did. I'm going to go back to that family, the rest of that family, and I sold a third of their property. He says, I will arise and go to my father, repentance. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. This is called confession. This is called naming it. This is called like owning your stuff, owning your sin. For some of us, that's exactly where we need to be. Because it's kind of easy to brush it off and kind of move past it. But like legit owning it and actually saying like, I'm a mess. I have messed up. I have sinned. And not just against people, but against God. Right? I could sin against my wife, against my family, against the church, and stand and say, I've sinned against you. But when it really gets real, like David in the Old Testament, is when you look at God and you say, ultimately it's against you and only you that I've sinned. That's the picture that's here. There's repentance and there's confession. When he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son... Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's an act of humility. And here's what's interesting with that is a hired servant in that day was actually kind of, in in terms of the father's responsibility, the hired servant was the lowest on the totem pole. So the father would have had like indentured servants or, or we would call them slaves, and they would have been people that were part of his estate, but he was actually responsible for caring and feeding them and making sure they were okay. This is not true of the hired servant. This was a day laborer. They underpaid them at the beginning of the day, and then they let him go. There are other parables that relate to that. Uh, and, and the father wasn't responsible for care for that hired servant in any way. When he says, when the son says he's going to ask the father to bring him back as a hired servant, What's happening in this this son's mind is that he thinks that he can work off his debt. I've put my family in debt. I've hurt my family. And what I can now do is I I can't go back as a son. That's no longer my identity. That's no longer my activity. But what I can do is I can come as a hired servant and I can work off my debt. Is that how you feel about God? You feel like, well, I really blew it. I really messed up. I really screwed up. I made a lot of mistakes. I lived a lot of bad things, right? And what I can do now is I can go back and make it up to God. That's what the younger son thought. I can make it up to God. Verse 20, he says this. It says, And he arose and came to his father. And here's what I like about those first three words, and he arose, is this. Like, guys, in life, like nothing changes until something changes. 
nothing changes until something changes. You know how many people I've counseled and talked to that have a lot of great plans for their spiritual life? You know how many opportunities that, that we have as, as pastors to sit and talk, or just as a guy, as a Christian guy, and you talk to people and they're like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to join this small group, I'm going to join this accountability group, I'm going to start reading my Bible every day. There are a lot of people with a lot of great plans, but nothing changes until something changes. This guy could have sat there, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and here's my plan, and I wrote it all down, and I posted it on Facebook or Instagram or whatever else, so that everybody knows about it, and they can say, oh, wow, that's so great. But when he got done with that statement, where was he still sitting? Right? In the story, he's still sitting in the pig slop. And some of us maybe are making a lot of plans and we're not making any change. Nothing changes until something changes. We know what this is like in life, right? I went to the doctor this week. I don't go to the doctor a whole lot, but my wife told me I'm 44. I need to go to the doctor. She's a nurse, so I said, okay. So go to the doctor. You know, they're checking the blood pressure and your pulse. Yep, you got one of those, so you're good. Let's listen to your heart, listen to your lungs, and all that fun kind of stuff. And a lot of what the doctor had to say, I really appreciated. It was nice. He's like, you know, for 44, you're not bad. I don't think you'll die for another 10, 15, 20 years. I'm like, I appreciate that. He didn't really say that. Some of you are like, wow, really? Well, there were things that he said that I wasn't as excited about, right? And I had it written right there. I looked it up on my app. It's called my chart. I looked it up. I was like, what does he mean I need to eat more vegetables? What? Eat more plants. Are there plants and donuts? Because if there are, Jim, I'll, I'll likely, uh, you know, I can do that, right? Are there plants in barbecue? Can we come up with that for the July 2nd barbecue? No, right? No, I want to eat barbecue and donuts. So I can go to the doctor and I can get the report and this is good and this is off and you need some help and whatever. And I, at that point, can do a couple of things. I can go home to my wife and say, all right, I'm going to eat better. I'm going to work out more. I'm going to drive slower. I'm not going to do as much work. I'm going to spend more time with the family, and things are going to be great. And then I can just keep living the way that I've been living, right? Box of donuts, uh, pizza, things that end in Eatos, Doritos, burritos, taquitos, Cheetos. I love Eatos. They're amazing, right? So I can tell all the good things, and I can keep living th that way. Nothing changes until something changes. If I want my BMI to go down, right? If I want to have less body fat and more muscle, nothing changes until something changes, right? If I want my heart to keep ticking for more than just another 10 or 15 or 20 years, like nothing changes until something changes. You guys, in our spiritual life, nothing changes until something changes. Great plan, great idea, great thought. What's next? And he arose, it says, he arose and came to his father. And if you push pause right there, we won't go through the whole thing this slow. I'm watching the clock. I know you have reservations. Don't worry. When it says he arose and came to his father, here's what's supposed to happen. This is like really important for you to understand. That, that when the, the kid arose and he came back to his father, here's what's supposed to happen. He is supposed to have to walk through town, walk, walk through the village, walk onto the estate, walk a long road, apparently, it says, while he was still a long way off. He was supposed to have to take that 
whole walk on his own with his head down. There would have been other people there, villagers there, other servants. People were around, and, and they would have seen him and known him, and they would have had the tisk-tisk, and they would have had the sideways glances and the whispers and all that. How dare he show his face around here? And he was supposed to take that walk. Meanwhile, the, the father, somebody's going to come and tell him, guess who's back in town? He's supposed to wait inside the house, wait inside the estate, and just be there doing his own thing, ignoring what's happening out here. The son is supposed to come to the gate of the estate and sit outside the gate. That signifies that he's not welcome back yet. He sits outside in shame. And then the father decides what restitution is going to look like. What price is he going to have to pay? What am I going to make him do? He's taken this walk of disgrace. He's sitting in shame. And now what's restitution going to look like? And the father's going to sit there with his arms folded, and he's going to tell one of the servants to bring him in, and he's going to come in, and then the father's going to level the charges, and he's going to tell him what he's got to do to repay it. Like that was what was supposed to happen in this process. That's the backdrop for this part of the story that we know so well. But while he was still a long way off, that's the father's anticipation. It says his father saw him. His father was waiting. And his father felt compassion. What do you feel? Right? It, this, is, this is something. If I can't feel compassion, there's probably something wrong with like my heart. Right? His father felt compassion. Like, what do you feel when people hurt you? What do you feel when, quote, people do you dirty? Right? What are the things? You feel compassion? Man, it's so hard. Says the father saw him, felt compassion, and you've heard about this one. And he ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. Now you're shocked about the kissing part. They would have been shocked about the running part. Because in that day, dignified older men did not run. You know why that is, right? We've gone through this a couple times here, and I hope you understand it, that they wore those long robes. And so when they got ready to run, what'd they have to do? They had to, as my mom used to say, hitch up your britches, right? This is an old guy. What's exposed when he pulls up his robe and tucks it in so he can run? Old man legs. Nobody needs to see old man legs. If this was a young dad, maybe, right? But you didn't run in that day. If you were an old guy, you didn't expose your legs. Nobody needed to see that, and you didn't run. It was undignified to run you didn't run and you didn't go and publicly embrace and kiss a son especially one that everyone knew was gone all of those people that were watching this ensue were all people who were expecting the father to uphold their dignity right the son was supposed to take this walk of disgrace and sit in shame instead the father runs in shame to the son the son, in order to protect the son's dignity, the father gives up his dignity. This is public reconciliation, but it's also public protection. That the father, instead of having his son go through all of that and then come and grovel and sit and then say, you have to make restitution, the father takes it all upon himself. You see, this is about the father heart of God. God's fatherly heart of love for those who turn to him for those who turn back to him. And so the father makes that journey so the son doesn't have to make that journey. 
You guys, you know who else made a, a walk of disgrace? Who carried a cross up a hill while people jeered and spit and did all of those things so that you don't have to? So that I don't have to? Jesus took that walk for us. There is an allusion to Jesus in this. In fact, some think that the Father really, as opposed to just like being the Father heart of God, is really focused on Jesus and what Jesus has done. Because he covered our shame. And he pursued reconciliation. This Father who could have stayed inside and gained a servant comes outside and regains a son. And he comes to him and does what the son should have had to do, but didn't have to do. Here's a question. How do you see God? Like, how do you see God looking at you? Someone asked it this way. When you think about what God looks like when he looks at you, what do you think? Do you see God with his arms crossed? I can't believe you did that. I'm so angry with you. I'm so frustrated. Well, I'm glad you're back, but now you're going to have to pay. Is how, that, that's how a lot of us see God. Especially those who would tend toward being rebellious. We can see God in that way. That God's like an angry father who's waiting for me to come home so he can dole out punishment so that maybe I can get back into part of his good graces. And everything about this story says otherwise. That God is a father with a heart of love and a heart of compassion and a father who is willing to, who was willing to take that walk so that you don't have to. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice that, at least in the English standard, in most manuscripts, it leaves out that last piece about the hired servants. Because he knows there's no working it back. There's no paying off a debt. The father has accepted him. And so we've seen this scene of rejection and then the scene of return. In 22 through 24, you're going to see what restoration looks like. The father said, verse 22, but the father said to his servants. We get to hear the father's heart for restoration. He says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son that was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is restoration. Here's what this is not. This is not restitution. You know, there's a big difference. Jesus restores. Jesus provides restoration. Works-based righteousness says you have to make restitution. Restitution means you pay it all back and then you're okay. Forgiveness is not by restitution. This is not the father saying to the son, clean yourself up. Get everything all taken care of. Get it all, go back and make amends with everybody else and then come to my door. And this is not sit in shame outside. This is total rejection turning into total acceptance from the father when he says that they're going to fill the fatted calf, kill the fatted calf this is a village celebration that's getting ready to happen this isn't just his family you could feed up to a couple hundred people on a fattened calf they were calling the crew together they were having a party they were going to be excited this is audacious forgiveness audacious restoration when when the when the father says 
that they're supposed to go and get the best robe and put it on him? Do you know what that means? It's not a bathrobe, okay? Like, I don't know what you think about bathrobes. I'm not excited about them. But this is not like, go get a new bathrobe and put it on. This isn't even like, you know, the kid's got like, you know, some nice clothes in his closet. Go get his nice clothes. Do you know who owned the best robe in the house? Take a guess. The father owned the best robe in the house. And the best robe was the robe that the father only wore to festive celebrations. He got invited to somebody's wedding, he wore the best robe. He got invited to a great banquet or social event, he put on the best robe. People in town knew about the father by the robe that the father wore. And he says, go get my best robe and put it on my son, because we're going to have a celebration and the whole village is going to be there. In addition, he says, put the ring on his finger. The ring was the signet ring that stamped authority of the father onto documents and legal things. He says, give him his authority. And even the shoes, when it says put shoes on his feet, servants didn't wear shoes, sons wore shoes. All three of those pieces are meant to show that when the father restored the son, he restored his identity. He restored his value. He restored his worth. He restored all of the things that sonship requires. This wasn't about him just kind of saying, well, we'll kind of welcome you back into the family, and we'll see how it goes. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir through God. That's what's happening here, is a restoration and a full restoration of sonship, audacious forgiveness. Wouldn't it be cool if that's where the story ended? We would be like, yes, there was rejection, and then he turned around, and the father restored him, and the story's over. And if the story was over, you know what else that would mean? The sermon would be over. The first service laughed at that a lot more than you guys did. Man, you're like, yeah, well, it's 10 after 12. <laughs> One more son. The older brother. This is the scene of resentment, verses 25 through 32. The scene of resentment. Now his older brother was in the field. You know what the older brother was in the field doing? He was doing what all good older brothers do. I'm an older brother, right? I'm an oldest son. I got a younger brother. He was in the field being responsible. Amen, oldest children? Come on, this is your chance. Oh, wait, that's right. The older responsible ones come to the first service. Party animals over here. That's right, I forgot. But the older son was in was in the field being responsible he was being respectable he was being dependable he was being all the things that the father wanted because oldest children are always the best Woo! younger children <laughs> oh you know what he was doing he was in the field being self-righteous and religious and he's going to get in a lot of trouble for it right now 26 verse 26 he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant and the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And the older brother should have been like, Yes, my brother's come home. We can hang out together. We can play video games together. We can party together. I love that kid. It's about time he got back here. Now I don't have all the chores to do. Right? But he gets angry. Do you know why he gets angry? Well, here's one of the reasons. The father's just given a robe and a bunch of other stuff, killed the fattened calf, which is like really valuable. Um, if you'll recall, the father owned an estate, 
One third went to the younger son, and he just trashed all that. The rest of it then went to the older brother. The older brother now owns everything that the father owns. Quick question. Who's picking up the tab for the younger brother's return party? Ooh, problem, right? I am all excited about grace until it costs me something, right? I am all excited to see people come to Jesus and love Jesus and Wow, look, that testimony was so crazy, we can't even have you share it on Sunday mornings. But praise God, you love Jesus. That's really great until it costs me something, right? Or until I feel like I was hard done by. Until it's somebody that's coming back to the Lord who hurt me. And then I get a lot like the older brother here in the next verse, verse 28. It says, but he was angry. Did you know that sometimes it just takes the right experience or the right situation for the stuff that's the junk that's inside of you to come out? right? Sometimes we have stuff that's like pent up in us for so long that it just takes the right situation for it to all come out, for like the real me to actually come out. And that's what happens here with the older brother. He's been in the field. He's been there with the father. The whole time that this younger brother was off doing his own thing, there he's been, being the good kid, taking care of the dad, taking care of the estate, doing what he's supposed to, being responsible, being respectful, being dependable, and all those things outwardly. But inside, rot just rot in his heart and it all comes out in that moment he was angry and he refused to go in you see the younger brother wasn't the only brother who rejected the father the older brother rejected the father here as well and then it says his father came out and entreated him because you see the father actually in this story pursued both sons he came out and entreated him but the son answered his father look and by the way, remember how the, older, the younger son talked to the dad? Watch how the older son, the, the good son, talks to the dad. All these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. You know what he's saying? Look at all I've done for you, dad. Look at all the great things that I did. I was respectful, and I was responsible and I cared for all those things. This is called works-based righteousness. If ever there's a time when I think, God, look at all that I've done for you. If my life goes off the rails by no means of my own, right? Like things go sideways and it, it's, it's hard, a tragedy happens. And I look and I say, God, look at all that I've done for you. How could you do this to me? It just shows that inside me was works-based righteousness. Another way to say that is performance-based acceptance. That he was just being respect, respectably religious. And the question to ask is, am I doing all this stuff for God, or am I doing all this stuff for myself? There's an author by the name of Tim Keller. And again, whenever I say somebody's name up here, it doesn't mean that I'm endorsing everything that they've ever said. But he wrote a book called The Prodigal God, um, and it's an exposition of this parable. And in there he says this. He says, both sons wanted the father's things more than they wanted the father. Right? The younger son wanted his share of the inheritance. Give me what's rightfully mine so I can go spend it. But the older son didn't just want a relationship with the father either. What the younger son wanted was the value and the dignity and the respect and all the things. They both wanted the father's things. One went about getting what he wanted by being very, very bad. One went about getting what he wanted by being really, really good. And they both did it with the wrong heart. Am I doing it for myself? Or am I actually doing these things for God? 
verse 30, he says, when, his, when, <clears throat> when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, the father gets the last words. He said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that I have, all that is mine is yours, literally at this point. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the point of all three parables. It's the Father's heart. It's the heart of God for repentant people. The story ends abruptly because we're supposed to say, like, what happened? Like, like did the older brother repent and respond and, and come back to relationship with Jesus? And the answer is no. What actually happens is, You'll notice who's on the inside and who's on the outside at the end of the story. You see, the lost son is not the son that we expected to be lost, is it? The lost son is the religious older brother. The found son is the rebellious younger brother. And here's what we're supposed to do as we close. We're supposed to find ourselves in this story. You're supposed to find yourself. I'm supposed to find myself in this story. Am I like the younger son, rebellious not interested in God, running from God, doing my own thing, wicked outwardly, people can see it, in need of repenting of my rejection, right? I need to repent of my rejection of God. Am I in need of being like freed from guilt and shame? That's the younger son. Or are you more like me, identifying with the older brother, really, really religious, like really good at being good, but being good for all the wrong reasons. Not wicked outwardly, but wicked inwardly. Needing to repent of my self-righteousness. Needing freedom from my own pride. Needing freedom from my own performance. There's something for all of us in here because both of these sons were lost. But at the end of the day, what we need is the father in this story. A heart of love and compassion for both sons. See, God loves rebellious people and religious people and wants them to become repentant people. The Father pursued a relationship with both sons as He pursues a relationship with us through Jesus Christ. And the Father forgives and restores those who are repentant. At the end of the day, God wants a relationship with each of us. And He's pursued that relationship through Jesus. Like, if you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior and you've been, like, running or walking away from God, you repent and confess your sins and accept Christ as your Savior. If you say, I've been really good and really, really religious, you repent of all that religion and pride, and you say, the only way I have a relationship with God is by walking with Jesus. And we just continue to live that way day in and day out together. So the invitation this morning is to find yourself in this story and then take that to Jesus. I'm going to pray toward that end and we'll be dismissed. God, we're thankful that Jesus is a... Through, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we have uh, Luke writing down this great story for us and that Jesus is an incredible storyteller and that all of these elements point to your heart for your people. And so I pray for someone who's here who is identifying with that rebellious younger son that you would show them um, how to uh, pursue relationship with you. And for the person who's here who would identify with the religious older brother, that you would help them to know how to take that to you as well. And God, would you help us to, to not be afraid to dig around in our hearts to see what's going on in there. We want to be repentant people who have a healthy relationship with you. We are just so thankful, even on Mother's Day, 
um, that we can think about this great illustration of you as our Father who is pursuing relationship with us um, and is audacious and tenacious, and we're thankful for it. We're thankful that we have the time um, to be together to do this today. In Jesus' name, amen.